As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Total Soccer Show and a listener questions episode themed around the end of the 2020-21 domestic seasons in Europe. I am Ryan Bailey and I'm in a public space. There's a sleeping baby next to me. That's why I'm a bit quieter today. Joining me is a man who doesn't have a sleeping baby next to him, I don't think. It's Taylor Rockwell. Hey, Ryan. I'm excited to be joining this NPR program this week. Mm, I'm going breathy in Ira Glass today. How do you like it? <laughs> I like it a lot. Uh, I do not have a crying baby with me. Uh, crying baby is hopefully not crying, but is at daycare. And I am here to talk listener questions, I guess, more specifically, answer some listener questions. Well, I'm glad you're aware of where your child is right now. That's very encouraging to hear. Like 90% um, of the time I know where she is, mostly. <laughs> Once again, I apologize if I'm a little quieter than usual. I am in a public space. Um, sometimes believe this or not they let me out of my home and this is one of those days it's incredible <laughs> Ooh, fancy <laughs> joining taylor and i you may have just heard his voice there is a man who may or may not be real madrid's next manager is joe lowry <laughs> i think i think i've been uh propped up for the salzburg job now the real madrid job man i i don't know if i keep waiting am i gonna get the man city job like is this just a, a level up situation i i'm really curious here is this like, are you, are you treating it like, you know, how people trade an elastic band for like a house and they keep trading? Is that what you're talking about? You go up level for level. Well, if I trade you the Salzburg job for the Madrid job, then I can trade that job. Yeah, I think that's exactly what's happening here. Just Salzburg's the paperclip in this situation. <laughs> Excellent stuff. I said rubber band, not paperclip. Oh. Don't, don't get ideas above your station. Sorry, my bad. Wrong item in the junk drawer. That's on me. <laughs> Anyway, uh, thank you very much for joining me, gents. This is a listener questions episode. As myself and Taylor have made very clear, we're talking about stuff about the end of the domestic European season. Shall we get to it, gents, with the first question? What do you say? Joe, feel like it? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. I know you're like the, the, the jug of juice bursting through the wall from the brand, which is the name I've forgotten by there. <laughs> Kool-Aid, man. Kool-Aid. <laughs> All right. Well, let's... Uh, I, they didn't have that where I grew up when I was a kid, to be fair. Well, um, I'm going to drink the Kool-Aid of this episode and get started with a question from Did they have Flavor-Aid where you're from? <laughs> Flavor-Aid? Yeah, had, that's they what didn't... they actually drank, by the way. Kool-Aid. Gets a bad rap for that one. Jim Jones serving Flavor-Aid, not Kool-Aid. We just had first aid, and it was what you performed when someone was in trouble. That's all we had. <laughs> or had too much Kool-Aid. One of the no other. right aid, no Flavor-Aid, no any kinds of aid apart from first. <laughs> If you ain't first, you're last. That's what we used to say where I came from. <laughs> Anywho, let's get to the questions with Josh Richards. Which title win from the top five leagues in Europe was the most impressive this year? Asks Josh Taylor. I have some ideas here. I would like to hear yours before I sell mine to you. 
right, this is like the least convinced I am for any of my answers, but because it feels just sort of like, yeah, I guess that's the answer. But I'm saying Bayern Munich because there were other maybe surprise title winners, and then there were other ones that sort of like returned to norm if you're Manchester City. But for Bayern Munich, I feel like so many other clubs, especially big clubs, fell off from where they were last season or the season before, and Bayern just continued to do Bayern things even as there was chaos behind the scenes. That was, of the top five leagues, that was the one I was least expecting you to say, if I'm honest. (laughs) I had a feeling, and that's kind of where I feel like it's strange, because it's Bayern just like, yeah, yeah, they won by 13 points, but like that in and of itself is really impressive. Scoring 99 goals, which I believe is 24 more than the next highest scoring club in Borussia Dortmund. Impressive. Robert Lewandowski breaking records. But again, this is with a squad that when you think about that sort of Bayern Munich juggernaut, you assume there's going to be a ton of depth and options everywhere. And as we saw in the Champions League, especially when you have 17 year olds having to come in and play, that means there's not maybe as much depth, which is maybe why Hansi Flick won't be there next season. Uh, but with that, with all that going on, with David Alaba publicly leaving, with Jerome Boateng not coming back, uh, Javi Martinez the same, it, it, they were able to kind of just keep that consistency going at a time when Liverpool fell off, Juve fell off, PSG don't win the league, Real Madrid and Barcelona both have off seasons, but Bayern just continued to do Bayern things. And to me, that's impressive in contrast to what everybody else was able or not able to do. Okay, so that's Taylor's answer to the question. Um, (laughs) Joe, do you have the correct answer? I don't know, because for me, I also didn't have Bayern particularly high on my list. But I hear what you're saying, Taylor. You looked at it as far as I can understand. You looked at it as the most comprehensive win, right? And that's impressive Mm -hmm. in its own right. I looked at it a little differently. I think I leaned harder into the narrative and harder into the surprises. And essentially mm-hmm. that left me choosing between Inter Milan, Atletico Madrid, and Lille, right? Uh, in in yeah. Serie A, La Liga, and Ligue 1. And I, I genuinely had no idea how to choose between those three. And so I, I did some reading. I went back through the results, and I went into the stats. And I landed on Serie A title winners, Inter Milan. It's been 11 it's been a long time since any team not named Juventus have won the title in Italy. I think that's pretty well established at this point. Inter Milan weren't, mm-hmm. weren't thriving at the beginning of the season. They were two points behind AC Milan halfway through the year, exactly halfway through their domestic season. Then they win 11 games in a row, end up winning the title by 12 points and finishing with 91 points on the season. But what really sold me was the numbers, because again, it was hard to pick between Lille, Atleti, and Inter Milan. The numbers sold me. They scored 89 goals this season, which was the third best of any team in Europe's top five leagues. 35 goals against, which was eighth best in that big five and best in Serie A. They were sixth overall in the big five in expected goals, sixth in expected goal differential, the best in Serie A. Man, between those numbers and just how long it's been since any non-Juve team has won the title, that's why I gave it to Inter Milan. But Taylor, I see your answer. And Ryan, if you don't say Inter Milan, I think you've got a good argument for whatever you pick. Thanks, Joe. I think uh, that I had the same dilemma as you picking between those teams. And I think Inter is definitely a good answer for that. Uh, only three losses, I believe. I think that's the fewest losses of the top five winners as well, which is an important metric. Uh, the one I didn't particularly want to pick was Atletico Madrid because, yes, they led since game week 12, I believe, but it wasn't an amazing league season. I would argue, I would argue that um, certainly all all of the three big contenders in La Liga had, had their fallibility. And between February, February and April... Um, Atleti lost three and drew five, which isn't great running form, I would argue. They weren't great in the Champions League against Chelsea, you could say. And not that we're talking about the Champions League here, but, the, you know, that, that all counts towards it. And also out in the second round of the Copa del Rey, which not, not a league performance, I, I grant that. But I'm, I wasn't entirely overly impressed with Atleti there. Um, I'd even consider saying Man City. They only had six losses on the season. They looked pretty imperious throughout. They dropped um, four points between the ninth game week and the 27th. That's all the way from November to March, which you could probably call the toughest part of the season. This is, you know, through through Christmas, through January, when when teams tend to drop points. They were very, very, very impressive, almost back to that best that they were of, was it, two or three years ago when they were pretty imperious as well. I had to settle on Lille, though, for myself. I just thought that was the most impressive, just just for overcoming PSG, you know, without a team of megastars. They beat PSG in April as well in Paris, and they drew with them in December in the in the reverse fixture as well. So you, you look at what Lille achieved. It was their 24th win of the season, their, their win over Angers at the weekend. They had 21 clean sheets as well. And that's with a 37-year-old Portuguese in defence as the centre-back mm-hmm. captain as well. I think that's very, very impressive stuff from Lille. So that would be my answer. So... 
I understand all of the answers except for Bayern. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, w- w- what, why do you say that you don't understand Bayern? Wasn't it a given? I suppose you could say the, the, the manner in which they did it was impressive, yes. And Robert Lewandowski's goal output was very impressive. But did they face stern, sterner competition, Taylor? Is that what you you would suggest? No, I think it, it's just more so that they did it so comfortably. And it like maybe there were those moments when we thought, oh, it could be Leipzig, it might be Dortmund, but we never really felt it was convincing. And to me, that's pretty impressive that they once again, with every other team sort of having the downturn in form, having the struggles they've had, Bayern having struggles of their own. And I think we'll continue to because I don't think their roster builds are still that compelling. Mm. Uh, but I think that they're able to just kind of get through it pretty easily and you're right that i would say like there's nobody that necessarily like really pushed them to the end but i would say the same of like not that you chose man city ryan but even with the premier league like who do you think is the second best team in the premier league i know it's manchester united in terms of the table but do we really think manchester united is the second best and if so i think that's maybe one of the reasons why i had a hard time choosing manchester city because it also feels like such a a strange year in the premier league with some big name uh, coaching changes happening and Leicester and West Ham being up there. I can't tell if that's parody and sort of everybody having stronger performances or everybody being a little bit weaker and Manchester City just being that much more consistent. Yeah, and I suppose it, it, it's a question of when you take the snapshot of when that team are good as well. Like if you look at yeah. Chelsea now, they're not as good as they were a month ago. True. So that's a that's good example, true. isn't it? Yeah. Well, okay. I think we can probably say that none of the top five league uh, winners were bad because they won their respective leagues. But... um all the answers are correct except Bayern. We're all agreed on that, right? <laughs> I would have had Lille second uh, for sure. And then maybe Inter third, although I will admit I had Inter in my sort of short list until the news came today that they're apparently about to part ways with Antonio Conte, which wow. feels like an odd way to end the season. Yeah. And uh, he'll be fighting um, Joe for the Real Madrid gig, I think, is the, uh, is the latest news. Come at me, Antonio. <laughs> You and actually he would he would definitely beat me in any sort of physical altercation. He's I was going to say of all the managers, super scary. You want a challenge to come at you? Yeah, it's him and Diego Simeone. I think are one and two. Okay, God, never imagine mind. Imagine what his agents like as well. I'm going to sit this one out, guys. Okay, so I'm going to sit this one out. Just it's just his agent is just him with a mustache, and they just scream at each other through a mirror. That's all it is. It's just the two of them being increasingly intense, like uh like an angry cat seeing itself in the mirror. That's what I picture <laughs> when Antonio Conte is talking to his agent. <laughs> Joe, you could always go and manage Real Madrid Castilla because you'll get given the main gig eventually. (laughs) Perfect. Ryan, you're a genius. Thank you. That's it. I'm a man of compromise. I'm a man of compromise. Um, Josh, thank you very much for that question. Let's go on to one from Joey Jadlowski who asks, who are some players from relegated teams that would really benefit teams that are still in the league? I intended this to be about the Premier League, says Joey, but if you've got interesting people in other leagues, he's all for it. He's all ears. Joe, I'll go to you first, sir. I have a couple from the Premier League, but I did decide to take a little bit of uh, of a more well-rounded view for some of the players. So I went through and scoured each league and pulled one player. I don't know if you guys want to hear all of them, but I'll at least give you a couple of my favorites. I'll try to pick some of the more under-the-radar ones. But I will start in the Premier League with Mateus Pereira, a right-winger for West Brom. Uh, very poor season for West Brom. They are going down to the championship. But Pereira was a real bright spot for them. He's a 24-year-old Brazilian left-footed, right-sided attacker. He loves to cut inside on his left foot, has really great vision, can play a nice, well-weighted through ball. He had 11 goals and 6 assists this season for West Brom, a team that doesn't score goals or create chances. 7.2 expected goals from Pereira. Certainly someone who could help a number of different teams in the Premier League as far as either coming in as a starting attacker or, or coming off the bench. One other player that I'll mention off the top, just so that I haven't been talking for forever, is uh, someone from Syria, Simeon Nwankwo from Croatone, 29-year-old Nigerian. He scored 20 goals for the second season in a row. Last year, he scored 20 goals in Serie B, and now he's back in the top flight, or he was at least for this season, and scored another 20 goals, had three assists. He's very, very tall, right-footed, six foot six, number nine. He scores goals, and if you're a team in Serie A looking for maybe an option off the bench to score goals in late-game situations or you need a new number nine, he's still maybe on the upper end of his prime, but still roughly in that spot at 29. He could be a really nice addition for any number of teams in Serie A. Joe, I'd like to send you a copy of my notes because the top two names on my list are the Tespera no. and, uh, and Simeon Conco from Crotone. Quite literally, this oh, is quite man. strange. Uh, and I was, I'll add that Crotone, who are corrected on my autocorrect to Crouton, which is hilarious. <laughs> they, they only scored 39 goals this season. He scored 20 of them. He scored more than half of his team's goals. So that's pretty impressive. I'd say that he's a name we, we might want to look out for. And as you mentioned, a couple of Nigeria national team apps on his resume as well. And yeah, 
Pereira, one of the best of the uh, of the picks from the Premier League, I would say. Although Fulham might have a few names, Tay Tay. They might. Um, I, I have a couple Fulham names. I have another name, though, that I wanted to get to. Uh, it's a Brazilian right winger who's left-footed. His name's Mateus Pereira. <laughs> that was my number one as well. Uh, the only thing I'll add uh, to, to, to Pereira being uh, a probably in-demand player this summer would be that uh, he. this is his second stint, but the first one was in the championship with West Brom on loan from Sporting. Uh, so maybe they negotiated his contract in such a way that it, there is a relegation clause or maybe his salary gets reduced, but... With it being a long-term deal that he did sign when he made that move permanent, they probably have a decent amount of money invested in him. He probably has a fairly high weekly wage because they were in the Premier League when that signing was made official. So that's probably one that they could do with selling on because he will require, uh, I think, a little bit of money so they could make some money there. Uh, yes, for Fulham, I had uh, Mitrovic, who, as I tweeted earlier, is somehow 26 years old, did not have his best season, but I think is a proven goal scorer in the Premier League, especially as an aerial threat, especially if you wanted to use like a super sub late impact uh, aerial threat. I think he could he could do a job there. Adam Lookman is one that's been on the TSS radar for a very, very long time. The wide attacker, uh, I think maybe could get some attention. And Andre Frank uh, Zembo Angisa, the 25-year-old central defensive midfielder from the Cameroon. He has the highest value of anybody in the Fulham squad at $27.5 million on transfer marked. Um, and he signed, this is the weird one, signed before the season in which they were last relegated. So they go down to the championship. He goes on loan to Villarreal. Then he comes back for this season of the Premier League. So it stands to reason that he will either be on loan on the move or getting a permanent move somewhere in the Premier League or elsewhere. But I think he his pedigree, uh, what he brings to the team, both from the defensive standpoint, but also calm on the ball, can make things happen, can handle a number of different systems because he's had a number of different managers at Fulham, I think would be a uh, smart signing for anybody uh, looking for a strong central midfielder. Yeah, definitely. I think Anguisa and Mitro were definitely on my list as well. And I could see Anguisa maybe like at an Arsenal, maybe an Everton if he wants to uh, be around That's the good. Arsenal zone in the league as well. <laughs> that feels um, like an Everton signing. It really does. It does, That's, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It feels like the like, oh yeah, they got him for like 12 million? What? How did that happen? <laughs> exactly. I think one one pool we haven't looked at is the German relegated teams as well. Mm. Um, Matthew Hopper, for example. Any takers? I, I don't th- no? I don't think yeah. he's likely to move, but I can see him. I can see. <laughs> I it. assume Joe is going to be all over that. No, I, I, I'm, sorry. I'm not sure. If, I'm not sure if Matthew Hoppe's. I mean, now I'm saying it like Ryan. I'm not sure if Matthew Hoppe is like very good right now, and he's so young. And I'm not. Joe. I'm not saying. I'm not saying. I'm just going to move past that. <laughs> I'm not saying he's a bad player or that he will be a bad player, but I don't. I'm not sure he'll get a ton of minutes for Schalke even in the two, even in the second Bundesliga uh, next year. But we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think the other American would be Josh Sargent. Yeah. Yes. Could yeah. probably, uh, he definitely needs a move. We talked about this, uh, on yesterday's show. Uh, but the question being, who are some, re- who are some players from relegated teams that would really benefit teams that are still in their league? Like, I, I think he would. I think in a better system, he gets more goals and probably looks a little bit sharper, even in just a system that requires him to develop more than he already has and be less of a, it's like the scarcity mindset of when you're just trying to survive, you're not really thinking about long-term development and planning. And I think in a more stable club situation, even like a Hoffenheim, he goes to mm. Hoffenheim mid-table. Uh, I might mention them later on in the show, which is why they <laughs> readily came to mind. <laughs> yeah. But that seems like a club that aren't really going to be relegation threatened, but aren't going to be in a position where they're fighting for the title. And so they can't afford to play sort of unproven or inexperienced players. That seems like a scenario in which he gets a lot of training, a few minutes and definitely develops uh, the skill sets he already has. There are a couple of other Schalke players who are technically on their books as well. Quebec, for example, yeah. Rabbi Matondo as well, who's on loan, at, who's been on loan at Stoke, John Joe Kenny as well. Are they, could they, could they be considered possibly? I mean, Kabak has to, I would say, just because of the the wages he's on. I I don't think they can afford that. I mean, I don't think they could afford him before, which is why I think he goes on loan. I I think Schalke fully expected that deal to be made permanent. I think if Liverpool had a better season, it might have been. But since they didn't, I think he, he suffers a bit in terms of his performance. But then also, I think the team around him not being at the level where maybe it would have been a year ago. So I think him coming back to Schalke, he can't play in, in this five Bundesliga. I mean, he could, obviously he'd be fine, but I think he's going to destroy their budget if that's the way they want to go. So maybe it's a year long loan with an option to buy to, I don't know, probably Bayern Munich. That seems to be the way they operate. 
Sigh. Joe, any more names you want to suggest? Yeah, I've got one more Schalke player. I mean Harit, a player I really enjoy watching. 23 years old, right-footed, typically plays on the left for Schalke. I think he's probably their best player, their most talented player, certainly their most talented attacker. Um, and I think he could provide a lot of value to teams in the Bundesliga or teams in a number of different leagues. Uh, two more two more guys quickly. Kike from Ibar in Spain, formerly in La Liga. 31 years old, mm. so he's, he's older, but he scored 12 goals this year, uh, 10.7 XG. Had a couple of assists as well. He could be a cheap depth option for any number of teams in La Liga. And then my last player technically hasn't been relegated yet with Nantes in Ligue 1, but it's Randall Kilo Muani, who's a French youth national team striker. Uh, he had nine goals, four assists, 10 XG, and 6.1 XA. He's tall, right-footed, dangerous on the dribble. He can press a little bit. He's a threat in the box, can create shots for himself or for his teammates. I think he, if not are relegated, I think he could very likely get a move. All right. Some good value players there potentially on the market very soon. Thank you very much for the question, Joey Jodlowski. We'll be back very shortly after these important messages. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, we are back. Oh, I'm still in the library being nice and considerate of the other <laughs> book readers around me. we got another question here from Nathan Clark. Would Liverpool have challenged for the Premier League title had they not lost both Virgil van Dijk and Joe Gomez? I've got a short answer, which is yes. Taylor, do you have a longer answer? I do. I also have that same short answer, though, uh, because I think there's obviously the on-field component. And Virgil van Dijk, I, I do think at least before Ruben Diaz became a very, very good player for Manchester City, was probably the best defender in the league, and I think he's still in that conversation for sure. So if you have Virgil van Dijk there and then Joe Gomez, who is uh, a very good to excellent defender, I think you put those two uh, together in the heart of that defense, mm. and you don't have as many of the problems on field. But then there's also the off-field aspect of things, about how much ink was spilled or keys were clicked typing about what are Liverpool going to do? Who are they going to sign? How are they going to handle this? Jurgen, how are you going to handle this? All the press conferences about how do you handle the defense? Why does Trent Alexander-Arnold suddenly look bad? And I think part of that is because he doesn't have the people around him that he's used to. You have to bring in new people who learn the system. It's not as fluid. And I think the entire performance takes a downturn. And so then you don't have the time and energy. If you're Jurgen Klopp, I think like his approach to management takes maybe 24 and a half hours out of the 24-hour day to get everything done. <laughs> and that's just when you add more stuff in there, he has to kind of take focus off of other elements. And I think some of the players in the in the Liverpool squad not having the seasons we know they can have or not playing up to the level that we would expect, maybe that's complacency. Maybe it's just sort of fatigue. I think those are definitely two parts of it. But I do also wonder if Jurgen Klopp having to deal with training new defenders and who are we going to sign and how do we make Fabinho fit in? If we need to drop him, then who's going to fill in as a number six? All of those things sort of compound and make the situation that much harder and make it that much harder to focus on competing with Man City, who to some extent avoided a lot of those issues. Yeah. And well, it's, it's similar issues to what Man City had when they sort of fell off when 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 they lost Merrick Laporte in the back yeah. as well, wasn't it? So it's a similar situation with VVD going out and he was so, so important to Liverpool winning the league. Uh, but I think the, the the answer to Nathan's question is definitely yes, because he, effectively VVD going out is the reason they won the league and the reason they lost it, in my opinion, in consecutive years. Um, and you look at the way they finished out the season with 26 points out of 30 in the final 10 games, still with a makeshift defence. They get into the Champions League with players like Reese Williams in, in their back line. No offence to him, but he's not, I wouldn't call him, you know, Premier League 
title competing kind of player. They had, I think it was 24 different center back pairings, that kind of disruption. It's, it's impressive to finish where they did finish with that kind of disruption, with that kind of shifting around key members, shifting around Henderson and Fabinho back and forth into the back four when they're not doing Henderson and Fabinho things further forward on the field. And I think they got better when, say, for example, Fabinho moved return to midfield as well. So I think that's that, that was a yes. I would couch this in caution, though, because... If you look at the amount of goals they conceded this season, it was 42. It was 33 the season before. And when you consider that seven of those goals conceded came in one game against Aston Villa, it does suggest maybe the defence is an issue, but scoring may have been more of an issue potentially for them. Any logic in that, Joe? I, I think possibly. I think it, this can be a things can be two things situation where losing Van Dijk and Gomez hurts you defensively. But then it also limits what you can do offensively, especially with Virgil van Dijk hitting those long diagonals out of his left center back spot with that right foot. He can open up his hips and play it across the field up to the right side for Alexander-Arnold or for another attacker over on that side. Maybe it's Mo Salah. Van Dijk was a big part and, and will again be, hopefully, a, a big part of how Liverpool use the ball. And, and he allows them to push numbers forward more. If he doesn't even have the ball... When you have Virgil van Dijk playing in that left center back spot, you can push up the field and not worry so much about the space behind you. You can commit more numbers forward, generally speaking, because you have van Dijk to cover that ground and behind and to make those 2v1 stops in your own half and to do all the things that he does so well defensively. It's all linked, right? The defensive contribution that he brings links to the attack and then the attack links back to the defense when you lose the ball. It's all a cycle and van Dijk was a huge part, maybe maybe the most important part of that cycle for Liverpool. And so losing him hurts you defensively. Yeah, we can see that in the numbers, both the goals and the expected goals, but losing him also hurts your ability to attack too. Yeah. And, and Joe, I, I entirely agree with you. And I think like even intensifying that is the way that we uh, like ourselves, but also just like the media in a broader sense talks about him. And it reminds me of to, to go with two very disparate, but kind of similar like uh, characters. There's like Omar from The Wire or Walter White slash Heisenberg from Breaking Bad. <laughs> and it's like, fundamentally, it, it's just a guy. It's Brian Cranston. It's a dude with a shotgun. Uh, Michael K. Williams is the actor there. Uh, but like, you, it's, it's just a person. But the myth around that person, the, the sort of like, oh, this person can't be killed. We don't know who it is. They're doing all this stuff. They have this empire. It creates this mystique that makes them that much more impressive and intimidating. And I think the way... Virgil van Dyke gets covered is as though there's no way to get past him. And I think it makes people a little bit scared to go down that side, a little bit scared to have to deal with him. We know what he can do on set pieces as well, both defensively and in an attacking way. And I think the narrative builds this, like his mystique up and makes him even harder to deal with, which makes Liverpool harder to play against. In the weekend review show, I'm, I was talking about things in Total Soccer Show that are canon. Uh, for Graham, it's uh, crowbarring Scotland into the conversation. For me, it's mentioning mm-hmm. AFC Wimbledon at least once a show. Just did it again. Very proud of myself. <laughs> uh, and for Taylor, I, I mentioned, I was trying to think of what's canon for you, Taylor. And I, I said it was an allusion to a TV show. And you've yeah. just lived up to it once again there. So thank you very always. much for that. Joe, what's always. canon for you? I've got to try and think about what. What, what you always bring consistently. Ah, man. You're too good for canon. Maybe math. you're too good. <laughs> not, not math, but maybe just reading numbers, I guess. That could be one. In Portugal XG. in some way. Yeah, XG is a big one, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. We'll work on it. We'll work on it, Ryan. Joe, I don't know if you're wearing glasses right now, but if you didn't push them up while saying reading numbers, I don't even know what you're doing. I am wearing glasses, and I did push them up in anticipation of you making Attaboy. that comment. Attaboy. <laughs> the, the librarian in my current location also just pushed up their glasses <laughs> while looking at me and tutting under their breath, by the way. <laughs> Nathan Clark, thank you very much for that question. We've got another mm-hmm. one here coming from Brian Wild. Are there any teams who spent much of the season at the bottom of their league but started to hit their stride towards the end of the season? Not enough to reach a high place in the table, but enough that we should pay attention next season. Hmm, interesting. I think maybe Liverpool's a candidate there, seeing that they were eighth in March and climbed quite highly, but I'm not sure that's the kind of team that Brian's talking about. Taylor, what do you think? Uh, it might be. Uh, I've gone for two that were sort of mid to lower table. Uh, the first would be from the Premier League. I would say Newcastle showed signs of positive growth in their last nine games. Five wins, two draws, two loss- losses. Callum Wilson missed, I think, two months of the season, but still managed 12 goals, uh, including a brace in a 4-2 win over Leicester. They can build around Joe Willock, who's only 21, Alan St. Maximin, who's only 24, Miguel Amaron, 27, John Joe Shelby is obviously the heart of that team and is 29. So still some mileage left 
left in that tank. And I think the way they were able to sort of put some things together at the end, it felt like a very Newcastle performance where they build the hype and then next year they start poorly and then there are questions asked. I have another uh, one in the Bundesliga, but I can hold off there uh, if other people have other Premier League clubs to discuss. I do. Sure. Anything? I do. I have Brighton on my list. They're at the top of my list. They they were kind of, man, I'm really leaning into this canon thing now. They were the, the analytics <laughs> darling of the Premier League this season. They have Graham Potter. They play some really nice soccer. And they were creating really good quality chances relative to their financial status, I think you could say, in the Premier League. And that was all well and good, but they couldn't finish. They could not finish this season. And they had this massive difference between the chances they were that they were creating and the actual goal output. So they were struggling to get results for a large stretch of this season. Ended up finishing 16th in the league, but they did have some promising results towards the end of the year. They drew against Everton on April 12th, drew Chelsea on the 20th, beat Leeds on May 1st, drew with West Ham on the 15th, and beat Man City on May Whoa. 18th. It was a strong stretch, and that's not back-to-back-to-back Whoa. games, but that's a nice run of form. And we're seeing under Graham Potter that this Brighton team are fun again. They didn't used to be fun, but they're fun now. They have the underlying numbers, and then at the end of the year, we started to see them actually finish some goals and, and finish chances and actually get some results. They flirted a bit with relegation, but they'll be back in the Premier League next year. I don't know if Graham Potter will be with them. He could end up moving to a club with an open job, open managerial position at some point. But Brighton, if they have Graham Potter next year, and certainly at the end of this year, are a team to watch. Um, Joe, we need to be clear here. Brighton aren't the analytics darlings of the Premier League this season. You're the analytics oh, darling of the Premier thanks, League. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Joe, can you run through that again? It was a win over Newcastle. It was a draw with Everton and Chelsea. And then where did we go? Yeah, so draw Everton, draw against Chelsea. They beat Leeds uh, and they drew with West Ham two weeks later and they beat Man City a few days after that West Ham draw. And in there, I think I'm looking at it now. There's also like a loss to Wolves, there's a sure. loss to Man United, sure. a loss to Sheffield. I'm going to assume that was just sympathy, but Wolves, Man United, <laughs> difficult teams to play against for sure. So that run of form, yeah, definitely suggests with the quality that they were playing and some of those wins, especially Leeds and Man City. Yeah, I'm going to say Brighton is, is the correct answer, although I do have other ones to discuss. But Joe, well done with Brighton. Thank you. There, yeah, Taylor, there can be more than one, an- more, more than one right answer. Yeah, we're, we're okay. We're okay. All right. All right. <laughs> Uh, then I will take us to the Bundesliga to talk about uh, the team I mentioned previously, Hoffenheim, who were consistently in the bottom half. They were not necessarily at the bottom, but I think most of the clubs that stayed uh, near or at the bottom remained there or maybe made it just outside. But like Hertha Berlin, for example, never really got far enough away from the relegation zone, but also never showed the improvement that we would want for this conversation. Instead, for Hoffenheim... Basically finishing the final seven games of the season unbeaten with three wins and uh, three draws, uh, including nil-nil draws with Le- Leverkusen and Leipzig, uh, Gladbach and Hertha they were able to get wins over. So to me, the way they go from conceding a lot of goals, not scoring that many, I think after the 27th match day, they had something like 41-4, 47 against. They finish with 52-4 and 54 against, which is uh, like a positive of 11 and then seven goals conceded. By contrast, over that same period of time, Werder Bremen, I think, scored five, conceded 18, cold, uh, scored six, conceded 13. So Hoffenheim definitely got their defense working, started scoring more goals, and uh, it's important to spotlight, did so while having an insane injury list. Many, many teams had many different injuries, but I think for their 3-2 win over Gladbach, for example, uh, Hoffenheim were missing nine potential starters, all due to injury or suspension, so that they're able to sort of mix and match from game to game, play some youngsters, give Chris Richards minutes. Uh, Maybe they make that deal permanent. Uh, I think a strong season for Hoffenheim, given everything that they had to deal with, and I would expect that they will be back challenging for European spots uh, next season, which is what they were doing at the close of last season. Taylor, props to you. Props to you for going that long without mentioning Chris Richards' name. You're a stronger man than I. (laughs) Uh, Chris Richards, Chris Richards, Chris Richards. There you go. Much better. Just make up for it now. (laughs) That's canon. There we go. Uh, I think we've pretty much covered that question. Uh, some excellent answers there, gents. Uh, I, I, I had a couple of suggestions maybe from Spain. Um, Atletico Madrid were 14th on game week two. They did okay after that. That's a wow. bit of a, a facetious answer, of course. But maybe Valencia, who was 17th in January, oh, and they yeah. got to a similar Hoffenheim-esque level of security and sort of bucked up their ideas a little bit towards the end of the season. I think that's probably about it. Uh, Sevilla, maybe. They struggled in the first half of the season. But we're essentially trying to answer the question of who's the least like Leicester this year, right? <laughs> okay. 
Yes. Yeah, the anti-Lester. The <laughs> yes. A-Lester. Yes. <laughs> well, there we go. I think we got that one down. Thank you very much, Brian, for the question. We'll be back with a few more questions picked out after these messages. I don't know why I paused so much. <laughs> Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, we are back. I have moved location from my local library to the local bookstore. There is an equal level of decorum required here as I flick through copies of uh, John Irving novels in the fiction department. Um, but I will get to this question from Herbert, who asks, uh, who says, will Taylor admit City are the bigger club when they win the Champions League on Saturday? Presumptive. Hmm. What do you think, Taylor? Will you admit that? Admit it. Admit it now. Admit it. I will admit that I did not enjoy A Prayer for Owen Meany. Uh, shout out, John Irving. Are you serious? Uh, <laughs> I, I think I read it in high school. And by read, I mean uh, quickly skimmed it in the class before my English class. So maybe I'm not the best judge there. But I feel Taylor, like you I'm realize a- when you're in a cider house, there are rules. Okay, You have to stick to them. <laughs> That's just good work by you. That's just good work by you, Ryan. Um, but I do feel like I'm a slightly more qualified to answer this question, uh, also more biased. But I will say, no, I'm not going to admit that because, no, I don't think it's the case. I think they're probably the better club presently, but that does not make them the bigger club uh, for me. That takes a lot more time. I might be biased, and I am excited to have this conversation with the two of you who are much more neutral on this one. So I'm interested in what you all have to say. I think if you look at some metrics, City are the bigger club, and some they're not. Uh, if you look at, say, what are you, Jonah? <laughs> if you look Fence at their sitting and using metrics, I don't know how I feel about this one. <laughs> so, like, if you look at finances, so Forbes, for example, they're about the same. City, United are four point two billion on the latest evaluation, and City are four billion, a paltry four billion. Uh, if you look at the fan base, for example, Manchester United, you, you can't argue they're not bigger than Manchester City. And that was a couple of double, double negatives. I've done a lot of those lately. I apologize. I always have to do the cancellation of can't not, so it means they can. So they are bigger. Okay, I got you. I can't not apologize for that. And um, Doing the math. But Doing then the if, math. You look okay. at, if you look at like the talent and the competitiveness, Taylor, you can't uh, you can't not argue that City are the, are the best in certainly in recent seasons in terms of what... Ask yourself some questions. Who finishes higher in the league more often? Who's gone further in Europe in recent years? Who's done yeah. better in the transfer market? Who has less debt? Who has a nicer shade of blue on their I shirt? Mean, <laughs> the debt one, I, I will definitely give you, but simultaneously, that's because they have the the wealth fund of a nation behind them, whereas Manchester United just have the Glazers' bald spots behind them. <laughs> uh, and and I do think that that like is 
it, honestly, that is kind of where my answer comes from. Is that you, you again? I will get in, you'll get no argument from me if this question had been: Will Taylor admit that City are the better club? At least right now, certainly. But I think for them to be bigger, it requires a staying power. And I again, this might be my bias. I really don't think it is, but I want to acknowledge that when I say that, like. If City were sold, like in a hypothetical world, let's say City are sold tomorrow to an ownership group that is reminiscent of John Henry at Liverpool. So we know they're not, they're going to be well run, fine. They're going to spend some money, but there is going to be some question of how much they're willing to spend. It can't be, oh, that right back didn't work. So we're going to go sign another 50 million pound right back. You're going to kind of have to work with it a little bit more. If there's that downturn in form, if they don't have the success they do, then it requires the fight back, the kind of figuring things out. Maybe they have a season or two off and then they come back. But I think you can't be at that level that, say, Manchester United, Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, Barcelona are, where they will always be, in my mind at least, a desirable club to play for because they have that history going back to the 50s and 60s. And Manchester City have some of that history, but it's certainly not as well known. It's certainly not as big or expansive you don't have as many throwback jerseys to some of those like famous players of manchester city's past unless you live in manchester and like are born and bred to wear blue i i think that's where i sort of am that's to me why they're still not at that same level yet um joe i would say this question hasn't poked the bear as much as i hoped it would can you can you prod <laughs> a little further please i can try i i've been sitting here <laughs> listening and i think you guys both make make good points i was going to answer this question in a very fence sitting kind of way and i probably still will if given the opportunity but i've been thinking and i have this question i don't know if you went out and asked the average soccer fan right now like not not people that are immersed in the soccer world that you know every day so even setting aside taylor your, your manchester united fandom just looking at what what these two clubs look like now and, and what they've looked like in the past. I genuinely wonder, I wonder, what would people say? Who who would people pick as the bigger club? Would it be Manchester United because they have that history? Or are we, as a species, more bound by recency bias? And I, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if you guys do either. But I'd be curious to take some sort of survey and ask, who's the bigger club? And even to learn how people define this term. Because that's the issue with this question, right? Mm. Now, I I, I like the idea from Herbert, but we don't we don't know how to define bigger club. Taylor, you've looked at it more from a historical perspective. I think Ryan and I maybe are are leaning towards the more recency bias angle, but there's any number of different ways. There's probably some position in between where where we'd have an even more difficult time answering this question. So I, I don't know. I'd be curious what the masses say on this one. I think you've got to measure it by the important metrics, you know, YouTube channel growth, uh, <laughs> international um, sales, marketing growth. I think those are really the important things we've got to look at here, right, Taylor? Yes, that that is obviously commercial revenue, noodle sponsorships, all very, very important. All right, question for you all then. Which which is the bigger, not better, but bigger London club, Arsenal or Chelsea? Uh, I don't, I don't know. You're in trouble either way. I know. You, would, you definitely will be. Ryan, this has got to be you because I, I haven't spent enough time there to notice Arsenal and Chelsea haven't been. I, I mean, Chelsea's been better, I guess, in recent years, but neither one of them has been particularly yeah. strong. What do you think, Ryan? Well, once again, this is a matter of heritage against mm-hmm. like taking a snapshot right now, isn't it? If you took a snapshot right now, it's Chelsea, undeniably. But if you look at heritage, if you look at fan base, Arsenal got probably a bigger global fan base as well. Yeah. One could probably argue. I don't have the, uh, the, the the Joe Lowry metrics on that one in front of me, but. It's, it's an unanswerable question, and I think and now I'm appreciating why this question is difficult to answer for Taylor in terms of, in, of the two Manchester clubs as well. Because yeah. it, once again, as you said, Joe, it is how we define and beginning things, which is what <laughs> Jebediah Springfield was all about. <laughs> he certainly was, uh, and not getting his head cut off because that would be illegal. <laughs> uh, a lot of Simpsons references in there. Yeah, so I think that's kind of where I am with it. Is like Chelsea have had some of those downturns, and I've obviously gone through. Many different managers that didn't quite work. I, I like it's been a while. Obviously, it's been since before Pep was appointed that Manchester City truly felt like this is a like a really bad season. They don't know what they're doing. They've got to figure out a new direction. And I think that's why I draw the connection to Chelsea and Arsenal is that Chelsea I think, became this like juggernaut, unstoppable force, and then not faded, but sort of fell into that pack of like the top six. It wasn't Chelsea and then the rest. And I feel like right now it's Man City and the rest. But I don't know if it stays that way once Liverpool get back to their winning ways and maybe Man United strengthen and Chelsea and Arsenal do the same. And then I think it it becomes that pack again. And then it's about who can kind of stay in that pack the longest and be 
the biggest. That's that's my broader answer. And then my very controversial answer is that I think if you ask me who's the biggest club in England right now, my answer is, is still probably Liverpool because it's a combination of history plus what they've done recently. Not this season so much, but I think Liverpool, it's Liverpool and City are the dominant teams right now in England. Hmm. So you kind of admitted it's not Man United then, right? I said right now. I said dominant. I wouldn't say biggest. <laughs> we did. Oh, gentlemen, we, right. did, we did answer this question, even though we had lots of debate. The answer is no. Taylor won't admit that City are the bigger club. So we, we did our that jobs here, and I think we should be proud of that. That's true, Herb. I hope you're satisfied with that conclusion, because <laughs> I'm certainly not. Um, next question here from Brian Lake, who says... Uh, did you, did you expect me to like, like rant and scream? Because I could do that. I can, I can rant and scream. I mean, secretly, I was hoping for that, yes, but it's, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to move on with that. I mean, I, okay. I would do that. I'm just worried that then there will be like an oil embargo, and, and what will we do? Like, I'm not trying to angry the, anger the people who refuse to operate under financial fair play and publicly say that they'll fund lawyers instead of uh, operating under the rules they're supposed to and thus destroy financial fair play and bring about the rise of the Super League. Yeah, yeah nothing critical to be said about Manchester City at all. Nothing at all. Joe, did you, did you hear um, the Man United fan <laughs> talking about other teams' finances there? Did you hear that, Joe? I did, I did. We're, did we're doing we're great, man. We're only $400 million in debt. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> oh, those angels at the Red Devils, Taylor. Yeah, they never do a thing wrong. Anyway, let's move on to a question from Brian Lake, who says, <laughs> what would have been the one story or event in the world that would have made Daryl the happiest this mm-hmm. season? And I know it wasn't in his nature as much, but what would the one thing be that would have driven him completely crazy as well? That's a question from Brian Lank, uh, Brian Lake. Sorry, Taylor, I'm going to turn the tables to you. Obviously, you're quite obviously the person who knew Daryl best out of this group. Um, what do you think of this one? Uh, I will give you soccer and non-soccer answers. I will start with the non-soccer, but because far and away, the number one thing he would have been happiest with this season was Donald Trump losing the election. That was the number one thing he wanted to see. Uh, unfortunately, that, that that did not come to be in terms of him getting to see it happen, but I know that would have been the thing. We, we had like a bottle of champagne for when he was no longer in office. Uh, we did not drink that, but it was going to be a celebration. So I think that would have been his biggest thing. And then I think the rise and abrupt fall of the Super League would have been the thing that annoyed him the most. And then the thing that also made him the happiest. I can definitely see <laughs> him like kind of sitting in office as the news broke that it was falling apart. Just saying like, like, oh man, 40 times while rubbing his hands together and sort of smiling. That was his style when it came to a thing that made him really excited. And then he would have flexed the shoulders and wanted to record to talk about uh, how bad that thing was. Uh, so I think the Super League would have annoyed him, but then made him very happy. And the final thing that would have definitely made him very happy uh, is Weston McKinney's season with Juventus. Though I will definitely say I know, I think I know Daryl well enough to say that he would have been at the very least, mildly bothered by Weston McKinney breaking COVID protocol. Daryl was a rule follower, and that would have bothered him a lot. When it was other players that Daryl didn't have as much invested in, I think it was sort of like, ah, I don't like that at all. And when it was Weston McKinney, it would have maybe con- made him deal with, I love that guy, but that was irresponsible. And Daryl would really process that and sort of work his way through it. So that would have been a thing that made him happy, but also simultaneously bothered him a little bit. I appreciate those answers, Taylor. And uh, talking about the more political stuff you mentioned there, do, what do you think Daryl's take would have been on uh, Joe's glorious rise to become the dictator? Oh, he of would have been all, all in favor of it. D- Daryl <laughs> would have would have, I think, operated on the policy of the more like power positions we give Joe, the better. And I know that comes across <laughs> as a joke, but it's really not meant to. I think Daryl, it's not the world of you both, obviously. Uh, Ryan, going back to our goal mouth days. Joe, I think for the first time, I think Daryl was the one who introduced me or introduced your work to me. And then I think also introduced us uh, probably via the Internet. Uh, But I think thought very, very highly of both of you. But yes, I think would have advocated for both of you to have more positions of power (laughs) across the world. Good people doing good things is always what he would have wanted more than anything else. (laughs) Joe, any thoughts on that? Your your dictatorship would have been approved. uh, That's good. And that's encouraging to hear that. That does make me happy. Uh, Ryan, I'm wondering... Are you interested in being dictator of another city in Portugal? Because I, I mean, I'm down to share of the country with you if you'd like. I mean, I do like Lisbon. Yeah. Yes, I'll have that one. Okay, Can I have that one. I, th- uh, I think you should. Ryan, think you I've should got bad it. news. Uh, it looks like the application process for Portugal has closed. We can give you Milton Keynes. You can be the dictator of Milton Keynes if you oh. would like. The choice is yours. Ouch. Thanks, Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> now nah, you can have Lisbon. That's fine. <laughs> thank you very much all right i think that's a wonderful question from brian thank you very much for that one. any more to add for that James? yeah i gotta find a I city just... in portugal <laughs> okay. 
I just wanted to say, I just wanted to say after Taylor finds a city or maybe while he finds a city, I think Daryl would have been pretty darn excited to see Owen Otisoe get his first Premier League minutes for Wolves. Good call. I remember when that happened and we talked about that or or it was on Twitter or whatever it was. And I'd kind of forgotten because it's been so long and Otisoe hasn't really done much else for Wolves senior team this year. But man, I think that would have been just an awesome combination of of things that Daryl loved happening at the same time. You are definitely right. The only thing would have been if like Weston McKinney or Tyler Adams had signed for Wolves. That oh, might have yeah. been, that might have been the end all be all of oh, his yeah. existence when it comes to fandom. That would have been so good. What would he have made of the um the flip the Yunus Musa flip flap? That's what I would ask. <laughs> Feels like a win win. He was he was pretty anxious about Dest. Like he was he was he was pretty as as worried as Daryl would be about something like that. He was sort of like, ah, I don't know. Like, I think he was really the Jonathan Gonzalez uh, loss really bothered him, and I think it felt like, oh, here we go again, we're going to lose another. So he was so excited with Death that I think Yunus Musa, I think that would have been the one that made him. He probably would have been even more hyped about that one than Serginho Dest, if I'm being honest. Yeah, nice stuff. All right, thank you very much for the answers to that one, Jensen. Thank you again, Bryant, for the uh, for the question there. One final one for this episode from Sean Hardgrove, who says, what were the best and worst transfers based off this season's performance? I've got some ideas here. I'll kick off with a few from the Premier League of good ones. Um, Ruben Diesch, I think, is probably one of the best ones uh, coming in from Benfica, made a fairly big difference, I'd argue, to Manchester City. Um, the perfect Vincent company replacement there. Taylor, what do you think about Edinson Cavani as one of the best transfers? Not, you know, he was free, obviously a bit expensive to keep weekly, but has made a pretty big difference at Old Trafford, I would argue, just just in the way he's so professional, just in the way he runs for everything and also probably scored the goal of the season. I think my one my favorite way to like sum up Edinson Cavani's season is to say that I saw uh, I read a couple different articles in preparation for this question. A lot of a lot about like the worst play, worst players, worst flops, and then about the the biggest surprises, most successful deals. And one of them began with like what we've learned by now is that free transfers do not work and are not of value because at this point salaries are too high and it doesn't make any sense. And I think the next article began with what Edinson Cavani has taught us is that there is still value in free transfers, which is my way of saying that I was not sure that was going to work. I wasn't sure it was going to work when he was suspended and injured and not performing at the level that maybe had been hoped. And yet in the end, he scores goals. He becomes that kind of the consistent competitor and angry demanding force that they've lacked since probably Zlatan was there in that sort of like, give me the ball, I will make something happen. And leading by example, I think also helping tutor younger attackers as well. I think he is definitely a success story for Manchester United uh, and transfers overall. Yeah, definitely. And, and Sufal, I'd say at West Ham is another one who's been pretty super consistent uh, in terms of the best transfers in the Premier League. Yes, if I'd look at other other leagues as well, um, what stood out for me maybe in Serie A was Nicola Barella as well, who I think made a big difference. Inter made a lot of signings, obviously spent a bit of money, but in a very good season for Inter Milan, as we've uh, uh, already covered, I think he was a big difference maker. Is that, that, is that a good one? Yeah, I think so. I, I'm going to stick in Serie A for a minute here, and maybe this is my American bias, but Weston McKenney to Juventus. I hadn't thought about this in, in this much detail until yesterday, Taylor, when you and I were talking with Bells. But, I mean, this is a great transfer. Adam said it. And it's like, this has got to be one of the best transfers, looking specifically at the player's career, but one of the best transfers to elevate a career ever. And I think that's true. It worked out for Weston McKenney getting out of the tire fire in Schalke. But then moving to Juve and becoming a pretty important player for them, helping them in a bunch of phases of, of the game and had his loan move with the option to buy that was triggered in March for about $20 million. Pretty good value for Juve for a player who ate up about 1,700 minutes for them this season. I think that's another really quality transfer in Italy. Definitely so. Any other good transfers before we move over to the bad side, yeah. Taylor? Yeah, I've got a few. Uh, I mean, just looking at uh, Atletico Madrid for a second, I think you have to talk about both Yannick Carrasco uh, making his return on a permanent move, uh, and then also Luis Suarez uh, certainly yeah. comes to mind. But Carrasco, for like the versatility in that he can play a number of different positions, but became such an important defender attacker for them on that left side throughout the season. I feel like that goes back to Belgium where he started being used there, but I could be wrong. But either way, uh, for what he contributed, not like I think it was only six goals this season. So not like even that much on the score sheet, but just how threatening he was, how good he was on the ball, dangerous crosses, running at defenders. And then Suarez obviously scoring the goals as many as he did for the amount that he was brought in for. I think you have to put them in that category. And then even maybe like, yeah, like I, I think we've already talked a little bit about Hakimi and I think Barella as well are, are on that mm-hmm. list for just sort of even though it's a lot of money, they backed it up with their performances. And I think they're big reasons why Inter are the champions. 
So that was the best of times. Any more from you, um, Joe, for, on the good side? Uh, Jude Bellingham to Dortmund. It was a lot coming from a championship mm. team from Birmingham, but $25 million to get a 17-year-old, one of the most talented youngsters, 2003s in the world. I think he's been been huge for them this season. Maybe not output-wise, but certainly what he brings on the field. Pedro, uh, shoot, Ryan, you had the Portuguese pronunciation, uh, pronunciation so well the other day. Pedro Gonçalves to Sporting. We talked about him a couple weeks ago or last week. I don't remember the, the specific pronunciation. But Sporting won the title, and they brought him in for about 6.5 million euros. And he's the top scorer in Portugal right now. So he has got 23 mm. goals on the title-winning team in Portugal. He's got to be on this list, too. That's an excellent pick. And Jude Bellingham, by the way, coming in with the pressure of having his shirt retired by yeah. his team. Uh, and, and since we mentioned Jude Bellingham, I'm going to take us back to England to mention again Ruben Dias, who just such an, an important pr- performer for Manchester City in the centre-back that they've lacked since Vincent Company. Obviously a massive part of why they're able to win the title, and that's after already signing somebody like Nathan Akei. Uh, and then I think Ollie Watkins uh, I would like to mention just because when I was doing my like my postseason research on this topic, uh, much was made of him being signed for only $32.5 million. And then looking back, it was 28 in the beginning. He was signed for 28 million pounds and has already met so many of those performance uh, incentives that now the transfer value has increased. But then when you contrast that with somebody like, say, Rian Brewster signing for Sheffield for 23.5 million and scoring zero goals, Ollie Watkins, 14 goals, uh, looks that much more impressive. Yeah, I think Rian Brewster was one of the top of my list for the worst transfer, certainly. But the worst, Donny van der Beek, Taylor. Uh, yeah. Not that he's a bad player, yeah. but just the fact that he was signed with no idea how to use yep. him whatsoever. So I don't blame the player. I very much blame mm-hmm. the second best team in Manchester for that. <laughs> second biggest, I should say. Yeah, and it's even more it's even more interesting slash head-scratching. I agree with you, by the way. He was number two on my list uh, for the exact same reasons. Nothing against him. It's just that it didn't make sense when they brought him in. And it didn't even make sense when they brought him in because the idea was, well, they have Bruno in the one spot. They have Paul Pogba in the other. What they really need is a number six, and that's... That's not really what he does. And yet Paul Pogba misses so much of the season, and it still wasn't Donny van der Beek playing there, which is what the expectation was, that if Pogba can't go or if he's sold, then it's van der Beek goes in there and looks just fine. And instead, that still wasn't the case. So for that reason as well, that like even with the backup plan not ending up coming to fruition, I don't think the move made that much sense. And I think it was like the 12th most expensive transfer uh, of the window overall. And um, Joe, what other Premier League picks do you have, and why are you picking Willian and his three-year deal? <laughs> yeah, that was one on my list. It was. He's. <laughs> it's just. It's kind of a head scratcher, right? He didn't have a huge impact this year, and he moved on a free, if I remember correctly. But yep. again, those transfers aren't really free from a financial standpoint. Yeah, he yeah, would be certainly. the one when all those articles said uh, free transfers don't give you value anymore. They were mostly yeah. talking about Willian. Yeah. No, I mean he's got to be on this list, right? Yeah. Yeah, I Definitely. mean, yes. <laughs> for £150,000 a week for the next three years to make Arsenal fans, not just troops, but I think a lot of Arsenal fans lose their collective minds. Yeah, I don't think that was the best signing. And I think I've mentioned previously, in the opening game, it was Fulham, I think, Arsenal played on the opening day, and I thought, oh, this is, this is going to be a great signing. Well done. Well done, chaps. And yeah, not so much. Um, in terms of any other signings, I was trying to think further along in the continent. Arturo Vidal? Is that... Is that could that make the list? And Inter made some good signings, and was he a bit of a vanity signing? I'm not. I'm not sure on that one. Hmm. Anybody, I, Joe? I'm not. I'm not sure. I watched enough of him this season to know whether or not he he worked out for them under Antonio Conte. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think he was. Yeah. He was brought in like, as like the familiarity signing, right? Because he he yeah. played under Conte at Juve, so it's sort of like, oh, you know how to win. You've got the tenacity we need. But then, yeah, you're right, Ryan. Sometimes that tenacity boiled over into red cards and unnecessary moments. He felt like the Nico Cranjar to, to Harry Redknapp, <laughs> that kind of move. Just It was just like, he's a guy you know. Oh, you Nico Cranjar. I forgot. That that has to be. He followed him to like three different clubs, didn't he? If not more? Yeah, he was he was very much Mr. Feeney in Boy Meets World following Corey Matthews throughout his entire <laughs> life. That's always a reference that will make me laugh. <laughs> you know, my kids have started watching Girl Meets World where Corey Matthews is the dad now. And Topanga's the mom. Fun. That's... <laughs> Weird. That's weird. Yeah, I don't, I don't weird. care for that at all. I don't care for people growing up and me feeling older as a result. 
I know it makes me feel pretty ancient watching that unfold on my TV on Disney Plus. Isn't that fun? All right, any more? Any more for any more for that question for Sean's uh, question there, gents? Anything? Any other names we haven't mentioned? I've got one more. Uh, Victor Osiman to Napoli. Uh, I, I missed this yeah. transfer back in the summer window, but he, according to Transfermarkt, was the third most expensive transfer of the season for about seventy-seven million dollars. And I'm not saying he's a bad player. He's young. He's only twenty-two years old. Uh, Nigerian forward who can score goals, can press a little bit. But he, he scored 10 goals this season and didn't play a whole lot. He played about 1,500 minutes. So there's something missing between the price tag that Napoli paid for him and the output. And maybe that gets resolved next season. But he's certainly a player to watch maybe more critically next year with what Napoli are doing and, and to see if he actually does produce to be worth that price tag. Yeah, and he's one who I think at times, because he has the speed he does and the goal-scoring ability that he certainly does, uh, I think there is at times an idea of kick it long and play him in and he'll make something happen. And I think that can work sometimes if there are other players to like deflect responsibility or to take up some of the, like what the defenders are focusing on so that then there are opportunities for Osimhen to run through but when it's just make like get the ball to him and hopefully he creates that works for Erling Haaland because he is Erling Haaland and is like sometimes 7 feet tall sometimes 15 feet tall it doesn't work as much when you're hoofing it from deep and hoping that something can come of it yeah there we go. All right. That just about wraps up our listener question episode. Thank you very much to everybody who submitted a question. If you have a question, tweet it, email it, step outside your house and shout it into the ether. We'll get it through any of those methods. Uh, Taylor Rocco, an absolute pleasure spending an hour with you today, sir. Yeah, right back at you guys. I, I just feel bad that we're not going to get to hang out for a while. <laughs> yeah, it's only going to be, what, four hours? Yeah. Yes, we're recording again in four hours. <laughs> We do. And the good news is I will have left the bookstore by then. And I'll be hey, back in my shop. That's good. Are you going to be at a coffee shop by then? Coffee shop, yeah. But yeah, in, in the quiet. And now I'm actually going to be on a train in the quiet carriage. So I'll, I'll be whispering. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Joe Lowry, Sidlow a pleasure. <laughs> very Sidlow. Very Sidlow to be on. I, I, won't, I won't be talking about uh, giant pieces of ham, though. I, I hope to uh, not to disappoint you there. <laughs> Joe, thank you very much for joining us on this one, too. Uh, your ex-genius is always welcome. Thank you, Ryan. Bye!